This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Today, my guest is Mark Sidwell, author of the book, The Long March, How the Left Won the Culture War and What to Do About It. It's published by the New Culture Forum this year in 2020. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Kirk. Thanks for having me on. Yes, I'm glad to have you here. Congratulations on the publication of your book. Thank you. And uh, it's gotten some uh, great reviews uh, and and pre you know, previews as, as well. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, you, you, I, one thing I noticed on your website, let me start mm. with this then. I, it looks like the book is available for free. Is that correct? Yeah, there's, um, there's an ebook on Amazon for anyone who can afford it. I'd, I'd uh, certainly be very grateful for that as a, as a poor author, but, uh, yes, we've also made a PDF available, uh, on the website of the new culture forum, uh, because, we want we wanted these ideas to be out there. They're, they're a small outfit. They're very interested in you know spreading ideas and and uh, getting getting new thought to people. Uh, so they wanted to have that option as well. But it's it's a PDF, so it's not quite so easy to read as as an ebook. There is in fact a hardback as well, but that's mostly for people in the UK. It um, could be shipped elsewhere in the world, but you, you'd have to be very very keen on the book for that indeed. Right. Okay. Oh, that that's um, that's great. But it sounds rather left-wing of you, um, <laughs> 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 unfree market capitalist. Uh, ah, well, may, um, maybe we're we're trying to learn from people who are better at these things than 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 us, and and you know that's part of the the point of the book, perhaps, is that people on the free market right, which is I guess uh, where I uh, broadly come from, have been very very good at winning economic arguments and thinking in those uh, capitalistic terms and understanding profit incentives and all of that. And maybe less good about spreading ideas uh, in a sort of cultural way, uh, and and that's that's something that the other side has been has been perhaps better at. So so maybe we need to steal a few a few ideas across. Very good. Oh wow! I'll steal this book. It's like <laughs> another yippee <laughs> idea going back. But but before we uh, get into the the discussion of, of the meat of your book, mm-hmm. uh, could you please uh, tell our audience a, a bit more about yourself, and particularly as it relates to the subject of the book? Sure, sure. So uh, my my background is uh, is journalism in the UK. I've been working as a business and finance journalist for the last. 10 years or so. Uh, most recently, I've been running uh, personal finance coverage for The Telegraph in London. Um, and before that, I also worked in free market think tanks on the, the free market right, as I say. And both of those worlds are very um, economically focused. They're all about places where you think about you know, what's going wrong economically and how to improve things through uh, economic incentives, new, new policies that think in, in that sort of way. And I became interested, much as you know, I think that there's a lot in in all of that tremendously important. Um, but I became interested in how, despite winning those economic arguments, you know, post the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, after which time even the left uh, was having to accept that you know profit was was a good idea. We had New Labour in the UK. There was um, Bill Clinton in the US. It was a real sort of change there. Um, but despite winning those economic arguments. And indeed, continuing to be somewhat popular politically, and Donald Trump in in the US and uh, Boris Johnson, particularly in the UK, becoming prime minister just last year with a huge majority. But despite all of those successes, at a cultural level, uh, the culture seemed to be shifting to the left uh, quite significantly, and particularly at the highest levels, uh, the most sort of 
uh, highly educated uh, people. And I was interested in, in what was going on there. And it seemed to be much more cultural and and so rather than economic. And so this book is an attempt to offer a kind of a history of, of how that happened and, and some of the, the forces that were at work underneath the surface. Right, right. Uh- I also notice in your about section on mm. your um, website that you uh, also are content director of Progressive Media, or, or you were well, um, yeah. content director of the Progressive Media International magazine. Is that a liberal or left? Um, that was a, a fascinating group? conglomeration of magazines. So they were bought by uh, someone who made his money in business information. So I think he sold a database company for half a billion or something like that. And when you do that, you can you can do whatever you like. And he saw a bunch of magazines he thought were interesting that didn't have any particular relation to one another, and he bought them all. And then he needed someone who knew about uh, magazines and content, so I, I ended up working on them. But this was a stable of magazines that included The New Statesman, which I mentioned in my book. You know, It's the house journal of the intellectual left in the UK as a very grand, long history going back to the early days of the sort of Fabians and, and the Labour Party, uh, al- alongside um, Spears Wealth Management, which is a magazine for the ultra wealthy in Britain uh, and uh, sort of their lifestyle. So there's sort of utterly opposed magazines and others that were luxury magazines on wine and uh, for private jets and so so forth. So it was, it was a curious mix of magazines, uh, to say the least. But but interesting, uh, interesting to work on and see that that range. And actually, I got on uh, tremendously well with the editor of the of the New Statesman, uh, despite our political differences, which is always cheering. Yes, yes, yes. And and um, I I wonder if um, because it's something that that people have commented on and noticed, and I I certainly mm. have. You know how sometimes you know the richest people in the world are also you know leaders of this um, wokeness and. Uh, mm march to the institutions. I, I, I don't know if you, you got any insight into that uh, through here, because it does seem like what is, you know, paradoxical, you know, you know, billionaires fighting for social justice. I mean, you, you kind of see it in that mix you just described. No, very true, very true. And I think the man who bought the magazines was uh, was sort of that way inclined. Not not so much mm-hmm. the, the ultra high net worth people who read um, Spears magazine or um, traveled on the private jets, I have to say. They're still some rich people who are just, you know, conventionally um, yeah. rich and splashing the cash. Uh, but I, yeah, there, there's certainly a strain there and, and perhaps a strain of um, sort of um, people who were born into uh, relatively wealthy families uh, who haven't maybe, you know, made it in the same way themselves, um, less sort of practically committed to how, how money is made, uh, particularly vulnerable to this perhaps. Yeah. And since this is an overtly political book, um, well, let me ask you straight up, right up front. Mm. I mean, how do you identify yourself politically? Because, you know, it's, you know, a lot of people like to, you know, be very simplistic about this. But I, I think you probably have a bit more of a nuanced position. Yeah, I think so. I, I, it might be easy to try and dismiss me as some sort of, I don't know, right wing extremist or something like that. I I I see myself as broadly libertarian. I, I'm socially liberal and, and fiscally conservative, I suppose. I think, you know, uh capitalism is how you make economies work for everybody and raise the standard of living and, and deal with poverty in important ways. There's um but equally I think people have the right to live their lives as they want to live their lives. And uh so I get concerned about our um overmighty systems of control and planning that, that have very noble goals, but uh, can actually make things worse uh, in the process or, or have side effects that are, that are far worse than their, their intended goals. Right. Right. So let's get to your book then, the, the title. Um, well, what is the long march through the institutions and why is it important? Right. So the long march through the institutions is an idea that was, um, well, the phrase was coined by a German radical called Rudi Deutschke in uh, 1967 in Germany. That's an important moment because this is this is just before the the famous riots of 1968, uh, a movement of the new left, as it was called, had been growing at this time, uh, particularly in Europe. This was a kind of uh, Western leftism that was really in reaction against some of the the worst atrocities of um, Soviet communism. They saw things there they didn't like, but they were still trying to hold on to ideas of the left, very idealistic, 
but still uh, revolutionary, committed to the idea that it wasn't about improving Western society. It was about fundamentally transforming it and uh, and putting something better in it in its place. And the more that the new left became concerned with revolution, uh, it, it sort of split in two ways. There was one extreme wing that became committed to violent overthrow. And uh, the, the famous example of that is the Bader-Meinhof gang, the Red Army faction, as they called themselves, which uh, survived for quite a long time and was literally in the business of um, of murdering people, of bombing people, uh, of kidnappings, that kind of thing. Uh, they just thought there was no other way to do what they wanted to do and bring down Western society and put a sort of socialist, communist alternative in its place. Uh, that, that even in the UK, there were sort of small versions of that, something called the Angry Brigade. It was never, it was never a huge thing. That Rudi Deutschke was offering an alternative to that. It's important to note he was still a revolutionary. He still wanted to destroy Western society, but he just thought there might be an alternative to violence. And so what he proposed instead was the Long March. This is um, a metaphor taken from uh, Mao's campaigns, Chairman Mao's campaigns uh, in, in China. And what he was suggesting was a long and quiet revolution where instead of violent overthrow of society, you would do an end run around politics by putting your people slowly and steadily into all the institutions of the culture so that uh, the the universities, the schools, the churches, um, bureaucracies, whatever, would have people who thought like you did in, in these positions of power, and that then that would create um, such change that it would be possible to actually get the revolution that you wanted without having to fire a shot. And uh, he was drawing on older ideas that uh, came particularly from an Italian communist called Antonio Gramsci, and this was just in, in Germany, but it was taken up as well by a very important figure in the new left in America called Herbert Marcuse, who had come over. He was a refugee from Germany because of the war. And he wrote to Deutschke and, and talked about how much he agreed with him. And he was, at the time, extremely famous in, in the US, a major cultural figure. Uh, and he really embraced this idea as well, that instead of uh, the violence, you would, you would take over the society uh, through taking over its institutions. Right. And um, it, it's interesting in your prefatory remarks in the book, you said you note that there are basically two opposing views on this. There's one group of people who think that this is absolutely obvious that we are the victims of a Gramscian plot. And there are some other people who see it as, oh, this is just another uh, right-wing conspiracy and that there is no um, cultural Marxist takeover of Western civilization uh, and and they have their um, sort of remarks against it. You, you've said that, um, you know, you, you recognize that, you know, there are these two, you know, very disparate views of the situation. And uh, so I suppose you're, you're trying to convince one camp and on the other hand, for the people who are already convinced, and, and I would count myself among, <laughs> among them, uh, and we, we can talk about that later because I think you have an interesting history. Um, you, you present a, a complex history and, uh, and you talk about you know, how you reveal in the book a more surprising pattern of causation and offer unexpected grounds for hope. Can you elaborate on this for us? Sure, thank you, yeah. Yeah, I suppose what I'm trying to do really is disappoint both sides of that argument, but in in interesting and and, and surprising ways. I hope that are that are still worth reading. There is uh, a very conspiratorial version of this uh, history, which is conspiratorial nonsense. And uh, this is not a conspiratorial book. What I'm trying to do is to is to look at what people really thought, what really happened, and where we you know really are in, in ways that that are very clear. Uh, and measurable in some ways to see and to explain how we got there. This isn't a book that says, ha, there were a few Marxists twirling their moustaches and they all went into, you know, and it, and it happened by some cunning plan. The real world doesn't work like that. And in fact, you know, I talk that there are very real uh, campaigns of subversion going on in the West throughout the 20th century, of starting with um, with, with Russia and um, 
coming all the way through, certainly people who are inspired by Deutschke and Marcuse and things like that. But most of what happened, as so often in life, is about cock up as much as conspiracy. It's about coincidence and just the ways things happen. I think it's undeniable that what happened is that there was, coming out of the 60s, after this sort of 1967-68 period where these ideas were floating around, you saw a tremendous shift of power in unelected places within our societies. And so to, to see this in, um, in, in measurable terms, Thomas Piketty, who's um, you know, not, certainly not a, a right-winger, uh, famous for his book Capital, arguing um, for, for wealth taxes, um, mm-hmm. did a, a very important paper which looked across several countries. You know, it's not a UK thing, UK, US, France, I believe. Uh, probably those were the main ones. Uh, and just looking at uh, political views in, in different economic classes. And basically over the last, let's say, 20 years or so, he sees a very measurable, very distinct um, shift to the left in the the educated classes. So he calls it the Brahmin left. This is basically the university-going classes uh, just shifted their views that way in a, in a very measurable, um, very distinct fashion happening across multiple countries. And he doesn't, he doesn't, particularly get into why he offers some some possibilities. I just think it's important to note that there are very, very concrete ways that you can look at it and say, well, something seems to have happened. Um, And whatever your views on that, uh, it's important to acknowledge that. Also important, I think, for for people on the left to acknowledge whether they believe in um, something like a long march or not, that uh, a, a tremendous number of quite influential people do. Uh, this isn't a, a fringe matter, as I talk about in the first chapter of the book, what happened after the um, the election in the UK, where Boris Johnson won an enormous majority, 80-seat majority, which is you know, it's enough to mean his party's probably in power for 10 years. It, it, it's a huge success. And yet, immediately afterwards, a lot of the senior conservatives were writing in the national papers saying, well, you know, the trouble is we have lost the culture, we, we don't have the institutions, uh, citing Antonio Gramsci, who I, I mentioned by name, and saying that, you know, we've won this political battle, but, but, but Gramsci's disciples have, have won uh, a different one, and they're really very downbeat on that. So, so these things are, are affecting the, um, the debate at a very high level in the UK, and I'm, I'm sure elsewhere too. So I think it's important for people to understand what they are and to take them into account, even if um, they don't want to go all the way with with um, the idea that a long march was sort of actively campaigned. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I I'd like um, I I suspect you're probably uh, younger than me. Um, I I went to I started university in the eighties. Um, when Reagan and Thatcher mm-hmm. uh, were were big, right? So I, I I'm suspecting I'm probably a little older, uh, maybe a little, or, or yeah, right. And um, so it, it, at that time, and and I I went to university and school and high school in Canada in Toronto, where the culture is you know the the, the sort of a natural party of government are the Liberals, right? So it's a very sort of liberal environment, but. Uh, at the universities, uh, you know, the the neoliberal document and, and what today we would call the neoconservative, kind of like the, um, you know, the Cold War warriors, uh, one, were very, very uh, influential and, and big in the academy. And I remember, you know, I, at that time, I was actually very much on the, the left and, um, and anti-imperialist and pro-third world and, and, and whatnot. Uh, and... Uh, it now the anthropology classes I took. The, that's that's where we got a lot of the subversive um, theories from. <laughs> Gramsci was concentrated a lot on uh, Foucault was kind of a new thing, but still at that time coming up. And so, you know, so we were looking at, at these at, at these sorts of things. And and it was it was really, uh, you know, we we definitely had the idea, and and I think it was true that it was you know you know, subversive, uh, you know, uh, a minority view, struggling against a sort of dominant, uh, you know, Reagan-Thatcherite view in, in, the, um, 
in the universities. And it, it's amazing how, uh, you know, that's totally, totally changed uh, in, in the universities uh, over the years. You know, but, but on, on the other hand, uh, another thing, by growing up, growing up in Toronto, I've, I've given this story before, um, the idea we had as, as it's very much along Pinketty's idea of the Brahmin class you're talking about. You know, so I, if you were educated and smart and humane, you were naturally a liberal. Conservatives were stupid. They didn't read the, um, you know, the intellectual papers. Uh, they were, you know, just sports fans. They were selfish. And, and that was your idea of a conservative, you know, kind of an oaf, a, a selfish person who didn't understand the world. And if you were sophisticated and well-read, well, you were naturally a liberal. When I went and I did, did my PhD in the UK, and I, I met uh, a whole bunch of people, uh, like Noel O'Sullivan was in my department there, and, and, and other people, Lord Norton of Louth. And I, it, was, it was amazing. I, this whole world of intellectual uh, European conservatives was shut off my whole life. And I was so angry at the education I had before because there were such exciting ideas that I'd never been exposed to. And this this all speaks to the kind of cultural wars and, and, and the, uh, the, the march through the institutions that you talk about. I, I'd like you to sort of uh, shed your insight on that little story I told of my own experience with the university system. That, that's a great story. Thank you for that, Kirk. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the important things that happens when um, institutions shift to one particular point of view, and this is, this is important to understand because people can look at this and be very sceptical because they'll say, well, look, you know, we're smart people. We're not indoctrinated. People, people tell us their political views. It doesn't mean that we're won over by them. Well, Fine, but but two things happen when you get um, university schools, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, with a view that tilts just one way and that they're sharing. One idea is what you're talking about. You don't hear the other side. You forget the other side exists. The idea that there's an intellectual way um, to be conservative um, just becomes something that's not even possible to think about. So so people miss out on a whole raft of ideas and that's that's obviously very important then they can't think those thoughts that it closes the mind down in certain ways and the other thing which is slightly more um subtle and pernicious and i talk about quite a lot in the book is the way that it it teaches you even if you don't agree what's fashionable to think and what's acceptable to say so there's a there's an economist called timur kuran who um i cite in the book and he has this whole uh, theory that he worked out, which um, he, he studied a lot Eastern Europe in, under communism, where people had to watch what they said very, very carefully because of secret police, etc., etc. And, and so he thinks about the idea of, you know, what's the thing that you can say in public and what's the thing you think in private and how different they are. And what happens in when universities are saying, oh, this is what you have to believe, or this is what we believe, this is what is going to get you high marks, this is going to earn you a a sophisticated place in society. So even if you don't uh, agree, even if you aren't won over, you start to know, well, that's what I have to say to get on. And it changes what, you're, what you think that you can actually say in public. So even if um, there isn't an indoctrination, there can still be the, these very chilling effects where uh, even if you still have differing views, you, you find that it's increasingly impossible uh, to say them because of the social pressures. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now the, these culture wars, as you note in your book it, itself, that you know it's been going on a long time. I mean, I remember in the nineties, you know, where you know it reached it, well, late eighties, and then in the nineties, it reached ahead. And uh, and to me, I I it seemed to me that everything sort of settled by the late nineties, and and. Um, and that was it. And then I suppose then we went into the whole war on terror and all that stuff by the 2000s. But um, you mentioned in your um, acknowledgments and preface uh, that when you were beginning research for this book, um, there was a Battle of Ideas charity um, that hosted um, its academy on culture wars then and now, and that uh, this provided an impetus uh, for this book, if I'm not mistaken. Could you um, just sort of touch on that and, and, and how, um, how what you're writing about now fits into this, you know, 
picture it, it seems like a sort of pendulum sometimes going from you know one side to the next back and forth um i'd like to hear your insights on that yeah sure no that was that was a great uh, conference and um to, to sort of add to my bona fides as someone who's willing to listen to um, all sorts of sides, that's actually a conference run at the Institute of Ideas, Battle of Ideas people are um, ex-revolutionary Marxists who um, mm. haven't exactly seen the light. Either they'd certainly consider themselves to be of the left, uh, but they're, they're open to, to other ideas these days and certainly very concerned about issues like this. And so um, they don't they don't come from exactly the same political place as me, but you can have a very interesting conversation with them. They're very sophisticated thinkers. And this was a, a great uh, array of panels and speakers trying to put, yes, the culture wars into a very long duration and you can sort of see how it happens. Something that you see when you look at that length of time is how much um, state power matters. And this goes uh, to the whole the whole heart of things is, uh, because sometimes conservatives look at this sort of problem and they say, well, you know, the answer is we just need to win for our side or we need to take over these institutions for ourselves, or we need to legislate for our, our kind of values. But the problem with that is that that just pours more power into the centre and the other side is going to win at some point and it seems from uh, the ability of, of the left to win institutional power that that's actually going to happen more rather than not to their side and you're creating a problem for the future that that you aren't even realizing yet which is why i i stress answers that are more about uh, removing power away from from the center and, and the state where to in a, in a more sort of diverse and, and lower level uh, kind of um, solution and, and a historical example of that is what happened with with schooling in the uk so uh, it's 1860, I think, uh, thereabouts is uh, when it, it became um, compulsory. Uh, but there, ha- there was a lot of schooling going on already. And it became a, a kind of a culture war where the, the people who were going and inspecting these schools that were, you know, outside the purview of the state and just parents educating their children and paying some money to do it. Um, they were concerned that there wasn't proper religious education going on at the schools. You know, they, they weren't getting the moral instruction that, that was suitable for the fibre of the nation. So it was really a kind of a conservative culture war that then helped to provide the impetus for um, putting the state um, into education and controlling across the country what it was going to be like. So you're starting to shape that because it's a way of shaping moral character. And so that, that was a, a conservative um, cultural war victory, if you like. But as it has turned out, I think it's very clear that um, state education system in the UK is an incredibly powerful, um, very um, left-dominated um, means for this kind of, of this kind of cultural education. Uh, the the number of people in in the education sector in the UK who vote conservative, you know, vote for the, the, the sort of right wing party is um, something like 10 percent is barely even 10 percent, whereas it's uh, maybe 40 percent or so who acknowledge that they vote for, for the left wing party, for the Labour Party. So these, these are mm-hmm. huge discrepancies. Um, it, it's a very, very um, leftist part of uh, our society. And Ironically, the reason it has power is because conservatives way back a long time ago thought, oh, this is fine. We'll just we'll just take power of this and, and use it to get what we want, not realizing over the long term uh, that you're actually giving giving something that your enemy can use. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. yeah. Now, if, if we go through this, the story that you outline in the book, uh, just, um, I, I suppose there, there are key key uh question that i'd like you to answer mm. in sort of going through the story you know like 
you know, how did it happen? You know, when would you say it started? You know, were there key moments? You know, what what's the what's the end game? What's the main goal? Is it the destruction of Western civilization or a Marxist leftist takeover or um, you know, and, and and who are the the sort of main actors? You know, if if you were to sort of outline the story quickly, you know, and touching on those points, how, how would you do so for us? Sure, let's um, it's a te- so it's it's not a small canvas, but we'll we'll yes, do what we can. Right. Yeah. So this is really a story about um, disappointment in revolution in the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, plenty of. Um, communist and, and socialist thinkers around in uh, the late 19th century, early 20th century, and they've got Marx and they have this theory and they think it makes a lot of sense. And they look at these societies in the West, these industrial societies, and they think, well, these are just rotten to the core. There's all these exploited workers at the bottom. There's going to be a revolution. Marx is right. Uh, but then the society that has the revolution is the agrarian um, serf society of imperial Russia. And that's not what anyone was expecting at all. And okay, that gives uh, a victory, a you know, a communist state, but that's um, not what they were expecting. They don't know why revolution isn't happening where it's supposed to be happening in these industrial heartlands. And this has constantly been the the problem for the revolutionaries: is that the proletariat, the poor people that they're supposed to be having the revolution on behalf of, uh, it never really um, wins their hearts, which is partly why you end up, you know, with these rich people and educated classes being being the ones who are taken by these ideas, but not not the people at the bottom of society. But in any case, they're looking at these societies and they and they can't work out why it isn't happening. So what you start to get are people developing more sort of Western ideas of, of how to bring about uh, a revolution. It, since they're being disappointed just by the arc of history doesn't seem to be turning their way. And, and after World War One in particular, which is sort of that total catastrophe for the you know the settled society of western powers like britain uh you know it's sort of real disaster for that sort of aristocratic world you might think then it was going to happen then but it still hadn't happened and also uh in this sort of early 20th century you start to have a rival totalitarian force coming in with the rise of fascism which uh you know uh, the the communists are, are totally opposed to as well i mean obviously um because it wants the power that they want, but also because their values they see as, as very different. And um, Antonio Gramsci, who we've mentioned a couple of times, was in fact locked up by Mussolini because he, he thought he was so dangerous. So they're very concerned about the rise of fascism. They see that as really what these, um, these industrial societies are all about, that, that's sort of what they stand for. And they're trying to come up with an alternative. And what they... Gramsci and others, particularly uh, something called the Frankfurt School in um, in Germany again, but it, it moves to America as these ideas tended to to, to then grow uh, and really really spread. Um, what they're interested in is, is is what's sometimes very loosely called cultural Marxism or perhaps Western Marxism, a Marxism that thinks about uh, not solving everything economically, that just the economic contradictions will destroy the society but that you will look at the cultural frame and that the culture of the society, you know, that the churches, the schools, the universities, the sort of things we've been talking about, that sets the, the frame in which it's uh, possible or impossible to imagine a different world. Uh, and if you can change the culture, the, all these institutions that together produce the sort of um, the refusal to see the need for revolution, then you will finally get the revolution that you want. So that that's very broadly the the idea that, that they come up with. And and in various forms, that's what uh, informs these other thinkers, Rudi Deutschke uh, in, in 1967 in Germany, and then uh, Herbert Marcuse and the New Left in across Europe and, and, and also in America as well. And in America, again, this idea, this sort of fear of fascism takes on slightly strange new form in that it continues because i mean america was fighting the fascists at this point of course but um to marcuse and others the bourgeois society there was itself incipient fascism they they thought they genuinely thought i don't think they were doing this for effect they genuinely thought that they were you know 
one bad leader, one bad uh, moment away from uh, a Hitler in America. So that was driving the the very real horror they had of that society. Uh, And, you know, it's sometimes you could sentimentalize them and say, well, these people were just, you know, they were just hoping for a better world. They, They really weren't. They thought the ordinary American was basically a Nazi in waiting. Um, right. Herbert Marcuse is a, something I quote in the book where he he writes an essay saying, "Ah, oh, well, you know, we don't believe in violence. We don't believe in, in violence at all. No, 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 that's not the way to get the revolution. We still want the revolution. And all these ordinary people in America are obviously as guilty as Hitler and Himmler. They're just as bad. But we just don't kill them because that's just not what we do. I mean, they're, they're, so it's, it's important to understand exactly how, how radical their thought was. But where I, I think I, I differ from uh, some of the, the sort of more uh, paranoid theories of this is to say, well, it's true that these people came along with these views which saw Western society as corrupt, wanted it completely overthrown, and that thought that you did that through these cultural means. And they spread these ideas and variations of them broadly through um, universities and so on. But it wasn't so much that there was an organized campaign to go into the institutions and, and make that happen. And you'll go there and I'll send you off to the schools. There was nothing like that going off. There was some people who tried to do that kind of thing. Uh, there's, um, there's, a, there's a very well-documented case at a polytechnic in North London where uh, it was very, very unpleasant, very sort of uh, not violent, but lots of intimidation and shouting and manipulation and uh, in order to take over an institution of higher education for these sort of radical politics. But that sort of thing tends to be noticed as there and um, doesn't necessarily work that well. So it wasn't so much about that kind of um, um, infiltration, just the general spread of these ideas that were very sceptical about the society they were living in and that thought that it was important to look at institutions and to to broadly shift them in uh, these sort of leftward directions. And just um, on, on a, to, to jump a little bit, but, but one of the things that I found very interesting really was, was how much what happened recently uh, mattered in a way I, I thought it might not have. So at the end of the Cold War, so you know, 89, early 90s, when really the economic arguments had been won and um, so Tony Blair, New Labour in the UK was, was saying, well, you know, I, he, he won a massive majority and he was the new new kind of, of left leader who believed in capitalism and said, you can get stinking rich, just pay your taxes. But he was still, still very interested in um, state power and, and helping people through, through this sort of central control, but, but not worried about those economic outcomes in the same way, not looking for revolution. But at the same yeah. time, and, and you might think everyone thought, uh, certainly on the free market, right, well, this is great. This is a victory for us. This is our kind of leftism. You know, we can go with this. But when you stand back and look at it, what happened over the, the period in which he was in power and really ever since, is what he did was he placed people that he agreed with uh, very widely into lots of powerful unelected positions. We call them quangos, um, administrative um, bureaucratic positions where you have quite a lot of influence through various sort of committees and panels over how the country works. Right. For and, U.S. listeners who may might not be familiar with the term, it's quasi-NGOs, correct? Uh, yeah, quasi-autonomous yes, so they, non-governmental organizations. Yeah, yes. mm-hmm. that's right. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, so, yes. and so, yeah, so non-revolutionary signed up to the sort of capitalist arguments um, for the economy. But on the side, putting uh, a lot of a lot of sort of left-leaning people, and again, not radical revolutionaries, into all of these positions, and that didn't seem maybe so much at the time. But now, looking back, that has had an enormous shift in in the thinking across uh, the UK, and it means that although we have uh, a massive conservative majority in the House of Commons, you know, in our in our government, uh, the country voted for conservative administration, that can do nothing about all these left-leaning people who have been placed in in all these other positions. And then they create a sort of interlocking system of uh, informal resistance against any conservative reforms 
that the government tries to make. So it's it's really hamstrung uh, what politics can do in the UK in, in really quite surprising ways. And it's not the long march as such that uh, people like Rudi Deutschke wanted, but it has, uh, you know, remarkably uh, powerful effects. Yes, and um, I mean, this is part of um, your argument, and I think part of the surprise and twists you talk about. That I, I don't think, if, if I understand your argument correctly, I don't think you're saying that, well, okay, now the uh, radical left has won and, and their plans have now been achieved. You, you speak about, um, you know, the blob, uh, and, you know, not necessarily communists or socialists, and, you know, it's, it's the political class, a quangocracy kind of, I, I, if I'm not mistaken. Could you elaborate on that for us? You know, describe this blob, this political class who, who appears to be the victor in all of this. Yeah, the blob is a is a great phrase. It's um, it chimes off the the old um, sci fi movie about a, a sort of faceless monster that sort of consumes everything in its path, and you can't fight because it doesn't really have a body or a or a, or a face. And it was a, it was originally used to describe uh, the problem of education reform in the United States, and then it was picked up in the United Kingdom as well because infamously in education reform is very very difficult because. There's a lot of uh, interlocking organizations who support each other and tend to think the same way. So if you try and uh, bring in an idea, they'll defend each other and it's sort of like trying to fight fog. Uh, so that's where it comes from. And then in the UK, people started to expand how they used it to describe what was uh, a growing problem in the sort of post-Blair years where there seemed to be something that you couldn't quite put your finger on. There were just organizations who no one had had uh, officially got them to coordinate together and no one had really elected anyone to them but nonetheless they had all this power and they supported each other and and it, and it was an enormous sort of influential effect and that class of people as you say are yet perhaps best described as managerialists their their politics are are left liberal they're not themselves revolutionaries but their their problem is they're as managerialists, they're very sort of self-interested, very careerist, very focused on um, self-presentation and on these sort of positive social goals that they think are really what their organisations should be for with this sort of left-leaning aspect that they have. And that makes them dangerously uninterested in what their organisations are actually there to do. And as a result, they become quite bad at what they have to do. And, and um, one, of the, one of the problems that we have uh, in the UK at the moment is a sort of startling array of organisations that seem to be very concerned about climate change and um, diversity or, you know, whatever the green issues, whatever the, the, the latest fashionable-ism is, but not necessarily in what they should be doing themselves. So um, the, the Church of England is um, much more concerned about, um, you know, bringing forward its, its carbon emissions targets than it is about the fact that, that it doesn't have enough people who actually go to church anymore. Or um, the, the National Trust, which is our organisation, which looks after grand old houses, uh, is now saying, well, we're going to move away from the mansion experience in which we focus on grand old houses. And you think, well, that's not kind of what you're for. And, and yes. particularly you know, to, to think about sort of more practical uh, organisations. With the pandemic, uh, I think um, you know, it's been fairly clear within the UK and, and for anyone perhaps looking at the UK from outside that our organisations that should be able to manage a situation like that, uh, and which in some ways you would think would be world-class, are embarrassingly poor, particularly Public Health England, which was our, our quango that was specifically concerned with issues like like testing for COVID-19 I and mean, has just had to be dismantled because it was just completely dysfunctional. So, so one problem has happened with this, this infiltration by um, a managerial uh, left liberal class is that they're just bad at their jobs and therefore bad at running these organisations in ways that actually uh, matter to everyone else in society. Yeah, I, I think that's a good and important insight, and and it does match up with my observations, and um, you know, go, going through some of these swings because I've I've kind of noticed that 
even when the institutions had this sort of right-wing bias, you know, and now they have this kind of left-wing bias. There, there's a there's this group of of conformists and group thinkers and social climbers and bureaucrats that will say and do whatever is popular <laughs> to be to be at the top. So if today it's anti-racism, they're the number one anti-racists, and if tomorrow it's anti-communists, they're the biggest anti-communists, and, and it's sort of this. They're just mouthing. You know, whatever platitudes of the day is going to get them ahead, and and I think that's kind of um, something which you are are pointing to here. Am am I right or not? Yeah, yes, no, I think that's 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 right. Um, so there, there's a lot of discussion going on in the UK at the moment post Black Lives Matters about um, tearing down assorted statues from Winston Churchill to um, slaveholders to all kinds of things, including uh, statues in churches. Now, obviously, there, there are huge issues around um, historic oppression and, and, and so forth. And you know, I don't want to um, belittle any of that. But there's just something striking about the people who run, I don't know, councils and London, mm-hmm. for example, the mayor of London is doing this, who are seizing on this, not so much, I think, because they care remotely about how effective this is, but because they know that it looks... It looks good, and it burnishes their their credentials on a fashionable, newly fashionable issue. And meanwhile, there is a cost to that because there are real problems, not just a massive global pandemic, but I mean, in London, for example, um, really, really serious issues around knife crime, uh, for example, that are not being dealt with. And it's not clear that these fashionable things, especially because when it's fashion, you know, you move from one to the other very fast. That there's any that there's any interest in what sort of actual effective good you're doing and what good you're not doing because you're focusing on that instead of um, some of the things that really matter. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It, it's it's kind of like about bureaucratic self survival rather than completing a mission, you know. And uh, yeah, I I I see that definitely. W- one thing I want to ask you a little bit about um, that you touch on in your book is, um, I mean, we've spoken about Mark Cuse, we've spoken about um, Gramsci, Mao. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think Mao is extremely complicated in this whole question uh, because throughout his long career, the, you know, he's, he's had, you know, sort of different positions. Um, could you just elaborate um, your, you know, um, your thinking and an argument as regards to Mao and Maoism and this whole movement. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I don't, I don't get into to Mao a huge amount, but he, he's important because uh, the Long March is effectively a reference to a particular military campaign of his, and that says something about the the valorization of Mao among Western thinkers who were really seduced by these ideas, uh, often seduced because. The consequences of these ideas of communism were happening a very, very long way away. It was easier to say, oh, I've got my copy of Mao's Little Red Book on a campus in the West, while whatever Mao might be getting up to with the Cultural Revolution, or what Stalin indeed was getting up to in Soviet Russia, was happening far, far away. Uh, still today, you know, one of the most senior figures in the Labour Party in the UK um, has said and has never apologised for saying on British uh, television that she thought Mao did uh, more good than bad. This is a man who killed millions of people. And the crimes of, of communism uh, in Soviet Russia, in, in China, uh, uh, in Pol Pot's Cambodia, around the world, are still don't get the the attention that they deserve mm-hmm. and and it, it's yeah. really important to hold on to that and that i think is partly a hangover still of having the children of the 60s the people who grew up you know with a copy of mao's little red book or thinking well now this really this is the the way to build a better world um that they just it, they don't really want to admit that what they were doing wasn't just a bit of fashionable fun but was actually something that has killed people on a scale that is almost too vast to imagine. 
what I yeah. what I think um, at the moment is is that it's important to to think about that 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 there was this beautiful seductive philosophy in the twentieth century this idea that you know we could equalize economic outcomes for the whole of society through economic planning and control by the state, which is basically the idea, instead of focusing, say, on economic opportunity or something like that. It's economic outcomes, equalizing those. That that was lots of very, very smart people thought that was beautiful. And it took a very long time to win that argument. You know, like I say, not really until the 1990s. And me- meanwhile, millions upon millions of people died, mountains of corpses. Mm-hmm. Today, what we have is um, sort of new sort of cultural version of that same sort of theory, which again is a very seductive, very beautiful idea about seeking equal social and cultural outcomes. So we're not so worried in this about um, economic outcomes, but instead more like um, have enough people of the right sort got this sort of job? Are they earning this much money? And seeing any disparities as necessarily proof of injustice, proof of something that needs to be fixed. And what we haven't, I think, realised yet, because people spent a long time arguing against the economic version of that argument, you know, there was lots of sophisticated arguments that ultimately won the day, but there aren't really arguments yet to that understand that this is just as dangerous as the, the economic version of the argument, that if you're seeking to equalise outcomes socially and culturally, that requires so much power in the centre to people who are, are just can't manage it responsibly, that you are going to create uh, a road to hell uh, faster than, than you realise. And, and that's, what, that's what worries me about, about the, these social and cultural movements now, that really they're actually just a, a parallel form to the one that we spent um, decades defeating, but that because we focused on the economic arguments, we didn't have the same arguments against this sort of social, cultural form of the same thing. And it's going to take a while uh, to learn how to counter that. You mentioned, um, quite rightly, the, the Gramscian notion of, you know, the war of position and, and, and the, the sort of establishing a, a different hegemony and, and fighting the, the cultural he- bourgeois hegemony. And uh, it seems to me very much that we are in a phase of a Maoist cultural revolution now, that, that we've sort of gone past the Gramscian quiet, peaceful phase and tearing down statues and destroying people's personal lives. And just like um, the, cult, the Gang of Four and the, the cultural revolutionaries were doing in, in 1966. And just, you know, as I was just uh, refreshing my mind about this, I saw that, um, you know, the, the Cultural Revolution had this aim of destroying the four olds. And these are the old customs, the old culture, the old habits, and old ideas. That sounds eerily familiar uh, today. It sounds um, you know, absolutely contemporary. Uh, do you have any comments you want to make on that? Oh, I think it's chilling. Uh, if you go and look at some of the records of um, struggle sessions, which was going on in the in the cultural revolution of um, of Maoist China, where you see you know the young students hectoring uh, the old, the educated, uh, the bourgeois, um, humiliating them, forcing them to sort of recant uh, for not being uh, righteous enough in the revolution, and, and horrible in itself, but horrible too because it chimes very much with where we are now, which is. Really, what I was trying to say about how these, you know, this search for equality of sort of social and cultural outcomes, this this sort of uh, new uh, revolutionary fervor, is is sending people in very very dangerous directions. It's not clear to me where that ends, but it doesn't seem that it it, it ends with anything like um, a free society, because suddenly you're in a world where anything you say that may be nothing to do with your job, whatever, can get you fired, and it's seen that that's the right thing to do, where speech becomes not the alternative to violence, you know, the, the act of persuasion that we have in a free society so we can debate things, but becomes something you can't use because it's violent itself, because it, it could hurt people. Once you've said that speech is violence and you're going to therefore have to regulate it as much as you do violence and control it, then what's left of the society where you can actually 
debate. You're in a world where the young, the woke, who've been to the right university courses are suddenly uh, empowered to lecture and humiliate the people who are just too old to get it. That that seems like um, a terrifying situation. And one thing that I say in the book, which I, I think um, is an important starting point for anyone trying to think through about you know what, what they might do about all of this, is that I think they should start by accepting that uh, the right has um, effectively lost the culture war, that it is in a subservient position, it is in the position of someone who's been vanquished. If you start imagining that you're equals and you're just fighting like it's another election where there are two sides and anyone could win, it's really not like that anymore. They, they, the territory of the institutions is in other hands. And that means that even the institutions of the right uh, can't necessarily act in a, in a particularly robust manner to defend even their closest friends. And, and the example I quote in the book is Sir Roger Scruton, who was um, uh, a remarkable man and a very sophisticated philosopher, um, very conservative philosopher. You were talking earlier about, you know, how hard it was when you were in Canada to to encounter, you know, this sort of um, the intellectual conservative mind, what, what that experience was actually like. But, you know, he was a sort of the, the pinnacle of that in many ways in, in the British scene. And he was hired for a, a minor administrative job in um, one of these UK quangos, which is sort of a very rare thing for a conservative to be given that sort of post. And then the New Statesman, which funnily enough, I used to work with, uh, published an interview which was basically a hit piece on him. It was used to to um, paint him falsely as a, a bigot and a racist and uh, all, of, all of these unacceptable things. And the interesting thing about that is not so much that the left went for him, of course, they did. And of course, they felt that they had the power to do it. But that the Conservative Party immediately folded, said, well, he's nothing to do with us. We, we disavow him and fired him. They ended up backtracking when they realised that they'd just been making fools of themselves. But it says something about where the culture is, that uh, the Conservatives were more scared of the leftist mob that was coming for this very prestigious Conservative philosopher than for defending what, who should have been one of their closest allies. Yes, yes. Um, it's an important point you make, uh, and... And yet, on the other hand, you have this observation that you say that the left is unelectable now, looking at um, the strong um, showing of the Conservative Party. And I'm not sure if you are talking about only in the UK or also in the United States as well, because the Biden and Harris ticket seems to be exciting, at least the media commentators. You know, we, I, I don't know how much of that will reflect in the actual votes. We'll see what happens. But, um, but it certainly, um, I, I'm not... It, the, the dominant narrative will, will not say that the left is <clears throat> unelectable. They, they really think that uh, this time Trump has had it. We've heard that many times before, of course. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I want to just... I, I'd like you to elaborate on that point first, and then we'll take it from there. So when you talk about the left being unelectable right now, could you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, sure. So this does seem to be a sort of um, not just a UK thing, a cross-national thing, but but the US is perhaps a special example, so I'll come back to that. But but broadly, the, the right is better, it seems, at moving slightly left economically than the left is at moving slightly right in a sort of more cultural sense. So Boris Johnson has managed to capture, his majority relied on him capturing people who used to vote for the left, but are also quite patriotic. They're old-fashioned left. They're not these sort of strange new radical left out of the universities that they don't understand, the sort of struggle session kids who, you know, want to wag their fingers at them. But that's why they voted for Boris Johnson. So he succeeded in making his offer to them slightly more left-wing. He was going to give, you know, them slightly more state power and, and, and money their way, um, whereas the, the, the left-wing party found it much harder to present itself as patriotic and sort of old-fashioned and uncomplicated. Uh, and that seems to be replicated in, in, in quite a few countries. It seems like that, that, that sort of um, 
that sort of shift is is more easy for the right to do and that that may, means that the right is doing quite well electorally the us is um is a complicated case i think trump is a sort of unique case in in so many ways joe biden That's is right. an attempt to present a, a democratic party that is rather like the the the, the voters that, that boris johnson won over that he is the face of you know old-fashioned democrats you know the, not the radical chic of um I don't know AOC and the squad, the, the sort of more more socialist it girls of um, that, that that's coming up on the inside track. So so Joe Biden presents perhaps uh, a version of of leftism that that's traditional enough and, and old old enough that it, that it, that it might it might just work, and um, we'll have to see. But it's interesting that that's the face, even though he's really very very old for the job. But they've had to go to that age to find someone who fits that sort of. Uh, profile of of um of the old-fashioned democrat whereas that's not so much maybe the the ideas that are waiting in the wings and we shall see whether the the ability to have that that face um prevents prevents the the, the worry about the other ideas that might be lurking in the background from from affecting how people vote right now you also mentioned um in terms of the way that you know the conservatives, I, I suppose you'd put it, have to um, fight against this long march is is a distinctive way. It's, it, it's not merely to to have a counter march from the right. And it's, it's also um, not to sort of engage in its own type of, uh, its own version of the left liberal managerialism that has taken over. You, do you want to expand on that a little for us? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I said um, slightly earlier. I don't. I'm not saying that right wing people should say, "Oh, well, this is a great idea. We'll just take over institutions and, and run them our way." That's that's not the civilized game because, as I say, what has actually happened here is that all these institutions are failing because they have been taken over by political goals that are not the goals that they exist for. You know, hospitals should be making people well, and police forces should be policing and and teachers should be teaching and churches should be, you know, saving souls and not dealing with whatever the latest fashionable um, political nonsense is or, or about sharing political views and helping people to know what they should really think, hosting struggle sessions. Uh, so what we're trying to, I think, get back to for all of our sakes is a, is a society where politics doesn't infect everything. You know, where we can actually just have conversations without having to do purity tests on what we think about everything and then cancelling people because they they don't have the right views. Uh, so I think it's very important that, um, you know, right-wing people, conservative people, don't um, just try and copy this tactic, which is very difficult. You have to try and fight something without just being its mirror image. And uh, I really try and give some suggestions to uh, Boris Johnson, I suppose, in, in the book, because I'm trying to suggest that politics, in a way, is the one, is the one lever that's left. If, um, if you don't own the institutions, but you can vote in uh, a government with a conservative point of view, then what you need is for that government, when in power, to try and use its position and influence to try and shape the culture away from that kind of political polarization and, and relentless uh, politicization of everything, uh, and, and that's that's certainly my hope. I I think there is a, a longer and more important intellectual game, which is about coming up with with alternative ideas, arguments against uh, these these ways of thinking. In the same way that it took you know decades in the twentieth century to develop ideas. Uh, for capitalism, from Milton Friedman and 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 Hayek and and people like them, we need the the cultural equivalent of that. But that can take uh, a very long time. And so maybe that's a sort of generational challenge. Uh, and in the short term, I think um, there's room for uh, uh, political um, attempts to to try and redress this and and shift things away from you know what I think is really quite a dangerous spiral uh, away from. Um, the ability to have the conversations that keep you know civil society functioning 
Yeah, I I think that's uh that seems to be the message of your book. It's probably a good place to to end the interview. Would you say? Yeah, no, it's been a, a terrific um, run through it all, uh, Kirk. Thanks very much. It's been a, a real pleasure to to chat over the ideas. Thanks, thanks. And can you tell me, you know, whether you're working on any projects right now, and and where our listeners can find you and your work. Sure. Um, listeners can find me at my website, which is marksidwell.com. That's Mark with a C. Uh, that's probably the best place to find information about this book. I, I try and collect all the various interviews, and there's, um, there's a little video of me reading the first chapter and links to the PDF and the ebook and so on. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, at Mark Sidwell, though I'm not terribly active, but you could, you could always reach out to me there. Uh, I've got a, a project I'm working on now, actually, which is the next book. It's always the next book, um, which I hope will be a little more forward-looking, having having done this uh, very much as a sort of history uh, of how we got to where we are. I'm interested in, you know, what are the what are the ideas that bring us together and take us forward? And I'm I'm working on a a book about common sense at the moment, the sort of um, intelligent person's guide to common sense, if you like, which I think. Uh, yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting one. Lots, lots, of, lots more meat there than you might think. Excellent. No, I, I look forward to it. But thanks so much for this interview. It, it's been very informative and enjoyable. My pleasure, Kirk. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Once again, the book is The Long March, How the Left Won the Culture War and What to Do About It. And we've been speaking to the author, Mark Sidwell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>